0: Talk to your local agent today. Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: If you follow the news in recent years, here's a word you've heard a ton. Tribalism. Political tribalism.
0: Political tribe. Tribalism. You know, pick a side, put on the uniform, and that's who you root for.
1: And almost always, when you do hear that word, it's negative. Political tribalism. Political polarization, the division, the quote-unquote tribalism. Epistemological tribalism.
2: It is pure tribalism that they're engaging in.
1: It's all bad. To be tribalist is to be caught up in some kind of toxic, self-reinforcing social dynamic that makes living together nearly impossible. But the story of tribalism is a little more complicated than that. We are, after all, a deeply social species. And that means none of us are truly free from the impulse to identify with a group of people we trust. The question is, what do we do with this impulse? I'm Sean Elling, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is David Sampson. He's a professor of anthropology at the University of Toronto, where he's also the director of the Sleep and Human Evolution Lab. And he's the author of a new book called, Our Tribal Future. It's a big sweeping look at the history of our species and the role that tribalism has played in it. Early humans organized themselves into tribes around 300,000 years ago. And this allowed them to cooperate at scale, which meant they could engage in larger projects and do something like trade with other tribes. But Samson thinks our tribe drive, as he calls it, has become almost pathological. He argues tribalism is the driving force behind conspiracy theories and hyperpartisanship and various other political problems. He compares it to a biological pathogen breaking our social brains. His solution is to develop what he calls a tribalism vaccine, which is really a kind of immunity against all the defects of tribal thinking. And this, I have to say, is where I think his book kind of goes off the rails a little bit, but it's really, really interesting. And Samson and I get into all of it. First though, I had to ask, How does an anthropologist who spent time researching indigenous communities in Africa come to write a book on a very modern political crisis? David Sampson, welcome to the show.
3: Well, thank you, Sean. It's uh, great to be here.
1: I'm glad you're here. I want to start by just asking you to tell me a little bit about where you're from and your your intellectual background. Because these things, as you say in the book, really do shape how you think about and how you approach the stuff we're going to talk about today.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I am an evolutionary anthropologist with an intense focus on one particular research question, and that is what makes humans unique. And to get at that question, I have gone all over the world, worked in different field sites with different model species. So, I spent about a year of my life out in the Toro Semliki Wildlife Reserve of Uganda with wild chimpanzees. I've done some work with small-scale populations all across the planet. The most notable for me was working with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in Tanzania, and now I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto as of last year.
1: Let me just ask you, since you brought it up, how did that experience that formative experience in Tanzania shaped the ideas in this very book?
3: Yeah. So I think maybe the way to provide some scaffolding to answer that question properly, I'd like to go on a little vignette with an analogy, because the experience that I had with the Hadza was my first ever experience living in a true camp-like environment, because the Hadza are hunter-gatherers. And so they have a similar type of structure that was probably something analogous to what our ancestors had for quite some time. So the analogy I want to draw on here is that of the human movie, to wrap our minds around the deep time involved here, the the natural history. Imagine your average movie, which is about 100 minutes long, and one minute into the movie, which would be a scale in on Homo erectus, which was 1.8 million years ago, Camp's come onto the scene. And so a camp is a group typically between 20 and 30 adults that work together in the shared project of survival and reproduction. And then it becomes very much sort of a slow-paced documentary. Hmm. You would need somebody with the narrative powers of a David Attenborough to really bring it to life because it would be pretty boring from that point on until about 84 minutes into the movie, 16 minutes left in the movie, and here something interesting happens. Tribes evolve around 300,000 years ago, and this was likely the first time you had a group of us interact really in in a significant way with a group of them. And the reason why we can say this with some confidence is that if you look at the paleoanthropological record, you can see evidence of materials, for example, in Alagrasagi, Kenya, Non-local materials, obsidian, they had pigment on them, they had a unique way of making them, and they were very far away from their home source. The typical hunter-gatherer group has about a home range of 30 kilometers. And so these were hundreds of kilometers away. So here we have a trade network that was extended. And then as time goes by, this only gets more and more complex. Up to the point where a minute left in the movie, things start getting super weird. And it goes from that sort of slow pace of a documentary to a science fiction thriller in the last 60 seconds, where with one minute left, Homo sapiens are the sole inheritors of the earth. They outcompete Neanderthals. With 30 seconds left, you have the advent of civilization with Homo sapiens unlocking artificial selection in plants and animals and enslaving animals through domestication to have a calorie source at any point in time. And this increases sedentary living. And then because of the sedentary living, with 15 seconds left, you've got writing being invented. And then with 10 seconds left in the movie, religion, or at least the kinds of religions we're familiar with today. And then with half a second left, two things happen that I think color our story significantly. With half a second left, the nuclear family is invented. And it is the first departure of this camp-like pattern that had existed and we had dwelled in for 99 years minutes of the human movie and all of a sudden, with the advent of the suburb after World War II, you have a big camp level mismatch there. And then with one millisecond left, you've got all the tribes of the world coming online, literally online, now there's 5 billion of us in social media, and as the movie fades, we're all fighting with each other on Twitter. And so that's the state we find ourselves in, these two levels of mismatch. You
1: are definitely the first person in the history of this podcast to distill the entire history of Homo sapiens in (laughs) less than three minutes. So congratulations on that. Why, thank you. (laughs) Let's set the table a little bit. Mm -hmm. You mentioned 300,000 years ago. I'm going to go back to that, that moment in time. This is the birth of tribes. Yeah. And this term tribalism is one that we're all familiar with. We hear it all the time. I think We all think we know what it means. And that, for me, is sort of its own problem because we tend not to reflect on things we assume we already understand. Mm-hmm. So I just want to start with the absolute basic question here, which is, how do you define tribalism?
3: Yeah, thank you for that question, Sean. So I'm going to give the academic version here, and then I'm going to try and boil it down as simply as possible. A tribe is an intersubjective belief network that signals coalitionary alliance, and its ultimate function is to bootstrap cooperation among strangers. So that was, that was a lot. Basically, a tribe is a group that is something along the lines of a secret society. And when you can properly signal that you belong to it, then you gain the rights and privileges of that society. That's my working definition here we can play off of.
1: What's the difference between being a member of a group and being a member of a tribe? I get that a tribe is a group, but it seems like a very special kind of group, a group that anchors our identity in some way. Yeah. How do you think about that distinction?
3: Okay, so one misnomer about tribe, you often hear in colloquial speech, people say things like, oh, they're my tribe, right? What they mean really is that they're, kind of fictive kin. They're very close, and I share a very close relationship with them. Take this example of going to a baseball game. You go with several members of your family, and all of your family can be, say, Blue Jay fans. Everyone in there, say 30, 40,000 people can be Blue Jay fans. But you can't say that all of the Blue Jay fans are your family. So tribe is a beyond Dunbar's number. 150 people is the limit by which humans can process deep social relationships. And so tribe is a way to signal coalitionary alliance, and strangers need to be part of that. If they aren't strangers, then you're just signaling to a sub-tribal group. And that can be more like on the camp or band level, your communities, your neighbors, the local church, maybe not like the Roman Catholic Church in its entirety, but that is the difference. It is the scale. It's trying to scale trust amongst people you don't know.
1: So you just mentioned Dunbar's number, right? What does that mean to say 150 people is the is the cap? Yeah. Why is that the threshold beyond which we can't process social relationships or the group becomes sufficiently scaled that the tribal glue doesn't quite hold.
3: Yeah, so Robin Dunbar has done a lot of work in this, This is the social brain hypothesis. The main claim here is that there is a channel capacity, and there's different scales to channel capacity, but the maximum number of individuals that it is comfortable for the human mind on average to be able to keep a ledger of record of interaction That appears to be about 150. Okay. I think the distinction here that would be helpful is, are they peer networks? Are they face-to-face? Or are they beyond face-to-face? And if they're beyond face-to-face and they're a group, then they're tribal. If they're below face-to-face, then they're a subtribal group.
1: So you seem to be describing the actual tribe. And I guess I'm more interested, at least at this point, in tribalism. Ah, so the tribe is the group. And then when I think of tribalism, I don't necessarily think of some kind of ideology, but I think of the story that that group tells itself about itself that helps hold the tribe together. Mm -hmm.
3: Does that make sense to you? It totally does. I think of tribalism with a lot of the other isms out there. It would be something along the lines of racism Mm -hmm. where you prefer your tribe over other tribes on moral grounds. You're saying that your tribe is superior to others.
1: Can I just ask you: um, Is there a reason why you felt compelled to write this book now? I mean, do you do you step back and think that our tribal nature or the tribe drive, as you put it in the book, is is short circuiting our world in some way at the moment? So it felt like a a necessity to write a book like this now.
3: Yeah. So. Remember, I opened up with this concept of mismatch. Evolutionary mismatch is a really important idea. And when I was a postdoc at Duke University, I was working in the Nunn lab of Charles Nunn, and he is really interested in evolutionary mismatch. And at the same time, the world was going through Trump and the election. And I remember thinking, mismatch is an important key of what's going on here. And then when Trump was elected, I had to throw out all my models of how i picture society functioning and that was actually kind of a catalyst i don't i try not to talk about it too much in the book for reasons we can talk about later but that was sort of a rubber meets the road moment and it catalyzed me into thinking about this very seriously and deeply with an evolutionary background i
1: had never encountered this concept evolutionary mismatch before Mm -hmm. you know i have i have always thought that most of our social and psychological pathologies stem from the fact that, as you're saying, for virtually the entire history of our species, we lived in small groups with real connections and shared values. And we probably spent a handful of hours every day doing the stuff of survival. And now we are mucking about in this world with the brains and instincts of creatures that evolved in a very different environment. And we're just super
3: ill-adapted for it. And it's not hard to see how that could cause some problems. If I could bring an example, too, of some mismatch outside of our species. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This might help clarify how drastic this can be and how serious it is when a species finds itself in a mismatch state. So the South African jewel beetle, very recently, it's been very close to extinction for a really bizarre reason. It's been thrown into a state of mismatch not of its own making, but of humans making because we like to drink beer and we throw beer bottles out into the wilderness at times to such an extent that these pits that are on the base of the beer bottle, the male African jewel beetle finds as a sexual signal. So it is very attracted to other females that have wings and shells with these pits on it. And it just, the beer bottle has sexier, bigger, shinier pits. And so they find themselves in a mismatch scenario where these male African jewel beetles are mating with beer bottles as opposed to the females. And it actually did a major dip on the population of this beetle until, and here's why we have to be aware of states of mismatch, until we provide an intervention. And in this case, that intervention was petitioning these beer companies to just change the design of their beer bottle And it's actually helped these populations rebound. You can say humans are undergoing multiple states of mismatch right now. We could talk about diet as a really fundamental mismatch with the fact that we have easy access to sugars, fats, and oils around every corner on the street with fast food. And this is creating a mismatch scenario where our ancestors for 99 and a half minutes of the movie, they were eating whole foods They weren't eating highly processed foods. And so it's causing things like diabetes and heart disease and obesity.
1: Tooth decay, right? That's a big example from the book.
3: Absolutely. Tooth decay is sort of the smoking gun because mismatch is kind of hard to measure in real time. The only other animals that experience tooth decay are bears and baboons, and it's because they're eating human trash. And here's the jumping off point from that realization. Humans can experience other things besides dietary mismatch. We're not evolved to be a solitary species. And isolation is fundamentally damaging for adolescents and for adults. Why is that? So we evolved in these camps and bands as we outlined for 99 and a half minutes of the human movie. And so when you put us in a state of isolation, just like chimpanzees or rats, other social species, rats, for example, if you put them in isolation— controlling for all other variables, they experience 84 times the amount of tumors. Mm. Chimpanzees in captivity will experience a host of psychological issues. And so we're seeing the effects of this mismatch in humans as well. In Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic societies, we're seeing a massive uptake in sologamy, living alone. Mm-hmm. In Toronto, for example, it's 36% of people live alone, despite of how expensive it is to to do so. Um, We had the Surgeon General give out an advisory against social isolation. And that's because for adolescents, it's very damaging to development. Over 40% of college students report being too depressed to function most days. 50% say they regularly feel hopeless most of the time. And two-thirds say that they're being overwhelmed with anxiety and 10%, 1 in 10, have considered suicide in the last year. I'm glad you went there. Yeah, I mean, I,
1: I think about this a lot. This, I guess I would call it a contradiction at the center of, of the society we have. You know, we live in a very liberal capitalist culture, which is very much anchored to this commitment to individualism. Mm-hmm. And boy, that seems deeply problematic in light of all this. I mean, there is a story in the book that I had not heard before and it just blew my mind and honestly pissed me off. It was about the creation of, of the first suburb in America in Levittown, New York. Yeah. In 1950 and just this was designed to be an anti-community community. And that's really what the suburbs are and have always been. And this is the part that really pissed me off. Like the goal at the time was to keep veterans from organizing themselves into unions. This is you know when they came back from the war and they just wanted to prevent people from causing trouble and gathering and organizing in any way. So it was really about atomizing the population so that it becomes politically impotent. And that outrages me for ideological reasons. But it's also a really good example of our society engineering pathologies, engineering loneliness and isolation, like you're talking about, which may have served some narrow interest in the beginning. But on a longer timeline, as we can see, the problem just boomerangs back and becomes what, to my mind, is a legit cultural problem crisis, a crisis of separation and loneliness.
3: Sean, your anger mirrors mine. I feel in a way, you know, I was robbed of the opportunity to grow up in a real, you know, community within a A a tribe, tribe. dare we say. Dare we say, in a lot of ways, I, I do feel very envious of people who were naturally born into that condition. And I think it was Douglas Rushkoff who said of this particular incident that they were afraid of men becoming communists. And if you're stuck in a suburb alone and isolated, you're too busy with the capitalist uh, grind to become a communist, so.
1: You can't own a house and become a communist because you have too much shit to do. Exactly. (laughs) Or something like that.
3: You know, it sent us on a really, I think, overall wellness-reducing path You know, I talked about the isolation being damaging for adolescents, but it's deadly for adults. Mm. It's predictive of increased broad-based morbidity and mortality, antisocial behavior. It makes adult brains harder to grow and change. For females, you have more difficult births, and it predicts postpartum depression. For males, it leads to cognitive impairment, weaker immune systems, heart disease, and a special sensitivity to loss to friends in old age. And it becomes really, really a a bad scenario for men who lose their friends in midlife.
1: There's a, a study in the book, I think in that same section, about the Belfast riots in 1969. And what they found, people reported being happier and more fulfilled despite all the violence and suffering because they felt purposeful. They felt connected to a community. A tribe, and that's you know I, I was in Louisiana when when Hurricane Katrina hit, for example, and mm. and I, I grew up in the South. I've been through several hurricanes, and that has been my experience as well. Not to, to fetishize suffering and loss; I mean those things are not good. Yeah. But there's this strange reality where during those times in the aftermath, where you know we we had family all living under one roof because people lost their houses, there is this sense in which people feel more happy and more fulfilled because they're conditions force them to connect more with other people and they feel like they have something to do and they can throw themselves into this collective effort to build back. Mm -hmm. It does satisfy something deep, deep in us. Maybe it is this tribe drive that you're talking about.
3: Yeah. It was Charles Fritz after World War II that was in charge of figuring out and analyzing all the data that the British government had kept during World War II, during the Blitzkrieg. The British government was super paranoid that in fact, You would see the disillusion of their society with the German blitzkrieg. I mean, nobody had ever been bombed to this level before. These were all emergent military technologies. And so they were trying to measure the psychological resilience of their population. And the shocking result was this thesis, the idea that the community of sufferers were the ones who were actually the most resilient. You see a dissolution of classism, and we're talking early 1940s UK. This was a very classist society, a hyper-classist society. And in these communities that were hit the hardest, class dissolved, and they rallied around their identities as British, and they came together, and they were the ones that had some of the least psychological issues coming out of the war.
1: Sure, humans are social creatures, but does that mean we have to be tribal creatures too? I'll ask David if it's possible to transcend the tribe drive after a short break.
2: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
1: You know, when people say, and this is something you hear a lot, that, that humans are fundamentally social animals, is that really just another way of saying that we're fundamentally tribal animals. And, and I'm asking in part because I know <laughs> there's a certain kind of person that likes to imagine themselves as being post-tribal, mm-hmm. which is really just an obnoxious way of saying that they're more evolved. You know, they're above that. Uh, they don't think that way. They're they're truly objective in that way. But mm-hmm. do you buy that? Or do you think of the tribe drive as so fundamental that no one really transcends it? We just may be blind to it.
3: That's a really great question. And my gut instinct here is that there's not really a choice of whether you are tribal or not. It is a coalitional instinct. We are identity crazed as a species. That's like, basically, when you ask that question to me, I get the feeling of, do you think people cannot have identities? And I'm like, uh, no, They're like, no, the, the answer is a hard no, full stop, period. Yeah, yeah. I think the best we can do, Sean, is think about what makes a good tribe Versus a bad tribe, and then strive to live and dwell and identify with tribes that enhance human wellness versus depreciate human wellness. That's kind of the way I'm framing it now.
1: Something you say pretty early on in the book is that for any social species, the biggest problem, the most intractable problem, is trust. Yeah. So is this a useful way to think about tribal identity really as just a a solution? Our species solution to the challenge of trying to figure out how the hell to scale
3: trust? Yeah. So that's, in terms of a positive spin, because tribalism's got a lot of bad press recently in the past five to 10 years, it's really become... For for good reasons, I, I would say. For good reasons. Absolutely. The irony here is that its original innovation was to scale trust upwards. But the issue is that once you create an in-group, a strong identity group, you have identity protective cognition kick in, and by default, an out-group is created. When tribes came onto the scene 300,000 years ago, it was a massive update to our moral coding. And I liken this to a cursed blessing. The blessing was we were super pro-social, and that means that we were on a face-to-face level, we were investing our energy to prop each other up in the effort to survive in a very challenging environment, in a very challenging world. The curse, on the other hand, is when you, on a face-to-face group level, you have sort of a tyranny of the cousins and those norms that are created by the group, if you break them, you run risk of being canceled. And what I mean by canceled in this context is you run risk of being excommunicated or maybe even killed in a group. You have that on the face-to-face level, but on the beyond face-to-face level, really the tribal level, the blessing was we can enhance cooperation among strangers. If I see somebody emitting signals, essentially what a tribal signal is, is a trust signal, but it's a very narrow trust signal that has to be recognized by others. And it has to be deemed by others as authentic. Yeah. If it isn't, it's a kind of tribal appropriation. And people don't like that. They don't like it when people are dishonestly signaling a coalitionary alliance that they don't really belong to. On the other hand, the curse beyond face-to-face level with tribes, the curse was dehumanization. And honestly, I don't think we're going to have too much disagreement here that dehumanization is perhaps one of the scariest of all human group dynamic outcomes because it leads to some really nasty things like, you know, genocide and uh, the like
1: yeah i'm not sure if you read you've all noah harari's book sapiens but this is one of his underlying theses right that yes the great innovation that catapulted our species above the rest was this capacity for shared fictions like religion and nationalism and even something like money and that's really all just tribalism at scale right i mean again it's mm-hmm. a story groups tell themselves about themselves that creates a collective identity And that makes large-scale cooperation possible. But as you're saying, you know, as efficient a solution as that is, boy, it comes with some downsides.
3: (laughs) I'll say this, though, on a positive note. Yeah. The one power that we have here that we know that helps with giving people back control over whether or not they succumb to different instincts is elevating it to our attention. So literally, I I consider this conversation right now an effort to help mediate some of the nastier side effects of tribalism.
1: You see, I may be a little bit less sanguine Mm. than you on this front, Um, and I think it'll be fun to explore that a little bit. Again, the title of your book is Our Tribal Future. So what is it that you want to see, right? What is it that you think we, and by we, I mean you know, the species need to do to thrive and live in a way that isn't destructive and violent and and pathological.
3: Yeah. I, in terms of our tribal future, the title of the book, this is the realm of speculation. Yeah, And all I can do is look at the preceding sets of data and give a best approximation on the directions I think we might go. But with that caveat, I think the 21st century, when we look back on it, might be looked at as a kind of anthropological Cold War. We have a situation developing here where we've got a mono-tribal identity of a highly centralized government in the East versus a polytribal, perhaps increasingly decentralized West. Hmm. So we're really getting into unknown terrain here. We've got, as I nodded to before, 5 billion people coming online in a a tribal royal rumble with social media. (laughs) And the fronts are twofold. On the very first front, I think fighting mismatch needs to be done at the community level. If we want wellness-enhancing lives, one of the ways to do that is to try and develop organic grassroots tribes versus sort of these disembodied political tribes that people have been sort of disproportionately weighting their identity to. So let me maybe talk a little bit of what I think a good tribe is versus a bad tribe. Sure. In the book, I talk about this idea of the concentric circle. It's my one philosophical move in the book. And it's a play, a evolutionary refraction off of Peter Singer's Expanding Circle. I think you had Peter on uh, just a few podcasts ago. That was a, Mm -hmm. a great podcast. His work has been an inspiration. And I think his concept of an expanding circle basically boiled down. It's don't privilege your group in any occasion. And that means that we can eventually expand the moral circle of concern to the point where everybody's a part of it. But the concentric circle, the idea here is that you can privilege your in-group as long as it doesn't cause pain to an out-group. Because in-group bias is literally one of the core components, defining features of the social suite, Nicholas Christakis's idea of the eight social laws that need to be adhered to for a good and functioning society. Principle one is the idea of an individual identity. You want to have a society that allows individual identity to flourish. The second principle is love, friendship. Social networks is another one of Krusakis' social sweet laws. And then mild hierarchy, which all human groups have a level of mild hierarchy, cooperation, and in-group bias. And I think for there to be a good tribe, you need to pay very close attention to the social suite. And the more alignment that you're in it, the better your tribe is going to be. And I mean that in both a, a health and wellness state and maybe even in a moral sense.
1: We've got to take one last quick break. But when we're back, I'll ask David to explain why he thinks of tribalism as a kind of pathogen and why he says we can vaccinate ourselves against it.
0: Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life.
1: careens a little bit, I think out of necessity, into a sort of mild utopianism. And I think I get why, but I want to push you a little bit here mm-hmm. and see what you think. So something you do in the book is liken bad ideas and memes like conspiracy theories or hyperpartisanship or whatever. You compare these things to pathogens that break our brains and lead to self-destruction. And I'm with you on that. But then you argue that what we need is to develop a cognitive immunity against bad ideas or against ideas that aren't backed up by reason and evidence, right? You call it the tribalism vaccine. Yeah, And that seems naive. First, because we're not logical creatures. I don't think we're principally motivated by the desire for empirical truth. And secondly, you seem to imply that politics is, on some core level, a dispute over facts, and therefore it admits of objective solutions, whereas I think the fundamental political disputes are over values, over what we think are the proper ends of life. And this isn't a matter of true or false, or even right and wrong, because those are claims connected to value judgments. And so our differences, I don't think, can be solved by deference to evidence. So I don't know how some kind of cognitive immunity could solve the problems and the necessary contradictions of political life.
3: Actually, I think we're in agreement with respect to value propositions, not being truth. Okay. And in fact, I think that's one of the most powerful cognitive disruptors of tribalism is that the value proposition of identifying with a coalition isn't to seek truth. It's literally to signal how inveterate And how strong a member of the coalition you are. So, in this world, when you signal things that are veridically untrue, uh, let's say global warming being a hoax, if you're in a group that says global warming is a hoax, despite what the scientific consensus on that idea is, the value proposition isn't whether or not it's true. It's despite the scientific evidence, I believe what the group believes, ergo, I am one of us. This is the fitness beats truth theorem. And I think it plays out so keenly on a social level. Another way of thinking about it is not believing in evolution. And and as somebody that grew up in a fundamentalist Christian environment and had a a fundamentalist father who for most of his adult life believed in a six to 10,000 year old earth, Mm -hmm. I had to come to grips with the fact that there was a rationality to it and a value proposition to my father Believing that was, it was a value of his group at the time, and that was what the power of believing this clearly scientifically indefensible position was. I had to come to grips with the fact that it was a rational thought, even though it wasn't true. So I think we're kind of on the same page with respect to our view of, of how that works. Mm-hmm. If I can flesh out here what I'm trying to say with mental immunity and the tribalism vaccine, so... Let me define the tribalism virus. I think of it as willful unreason coupled with identity protective cognition. And so identity protective cognition is that thing that biases our perception of what is true and what is not to default to what the group believes. And it protects our identity at all costs. And so a great example of this, of the tribalism virus, is the creation versus evolution debate with Ken Ham, and Bill Nye the science guy, back in the aughts. Mr. Bill Nye and Mr. Ken Ham. I was really interested in this debate. It was fascinating. And I wonder if you remember this one part, because I've now played it in my classroom a dozen times. The moderator asked, What, if anything, would ever change your mind? Which is seriously one of the most powerful questions you can ask anybody you have a disagreement with. It is a fundamentally shocking question. And it will tell you whether or not you have a good faith versus a bad faith interlocutor. And Bill Nye was your classic scientist. Well, I would need to see XYZ in terms of evidence. We would just need one piece of evidence. We would need the fossil that swam from one layer to another. We would need evidence that the universe is not expanding. Evidence that rock layers can somehow form in just 4,000 years instead of the extraordinary amount. We would need evidence that somehow you can reset atomic clocks and keep neutrons from becoming protons. You can bring on any of those things
0: and you would, uh, inf- you would change me uh, immediately.
3: Ken Ham, his response from the opening sentence was, Well, the answer to that question is, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. And as, as a Christian, an answer, I admit that that's where I start from. He responded his identity. Okay, so that's what I mean by, in no situation... Is my identity going to be challenged on the basis of new evidence? But what we see in the science now coming out in this really hot emerging field of mental immunity is that, in fact, there's one thing that's really good at shoring up our minds against this type of bad information, and that is meta-belief. It is the belief that beliefs can change. And so here's the move I have. If it doesn't work, that's okay, but I gave it my best shot. The move is a vaccine, a tribalism vaccine hypothesis would be breaking down groupishness to use its effect against bad types of groupishness. You've got two things in a a vaccine you have an immunogen and an adjuvant. The immunogen is like the benign part of a vaccine that is the part of the virus that you inject so that the immune system can map onto it. The adjuvant is like the instructions. That your immune system gives to enact the process of fighting the virus. And so in this analogy, in this metaphor, I'm thinking of the immunogen as identity protective cognition because we need to use that thing against tribalism. We need to use identity against tribalism to fight it. It's like a fighting fire with fire. Yeah. And then the adjuvant is meta-belief. It's a sacred value that beliefs can change. The claim here is that if you get herd immunity, then it changes the game. That's the claim. But it's more of just a hedge on the societal level of a two-front war. I'm not banking everything on this happening. It's just a way to conceive of how we could perhaps create mental resilience in our societies writ large.
1: I love the aspiration. I think part of me feels like it's almost trying to square a circle almost like saying what we have to do is just inhabit another slightly healthier contradiction. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
1: Like you may be right that, well, maybe this is me talking, not you, that we've outlived the utility of some of these tribal instincts and they become pathological. And you want to say that the solution to that is to form basically a a new and wiser and bigger tribe, like a global tribe committed to reason and evidence and and meta-belief, as you say. But to be committed in that way is basically to be tribal by definition, right? You can call it a meta-tribe or or team human or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I don't know if that it works. It's like imagining an in-group without an out-group. One isn't intelligible without
3: the other. So to be clear, I really don't see a world... That is one monolithic tribe. That is not something I I see, nor actually do I think I would like to see it, because tribes, they're built off of the symbolic information, the symbolic data all around us. And I think healthy tribes, that variation is beautiful. Every tribe has its art, its language, its sense of meaning and purpose that it derives from its experience in the universe. I want to see more, not less. So this is not a claim at all in any stretch of the imagination to create a monolithic tribe. It's literally just trying to inoculate enough of the population with a thing that we know helps mental immunity to basically give our species some sort of probabilistic bump of surviving the 21st and 22nd century. That's really what it's going for. No, I again, like, I'm with you. I just, I'm not
1: sure it works. And I didn't mean to imply that you, you think we're going to have just one big, giant global tribe. And the idea is that there's this meta tribe that encompasses all these micro tribes, Yep, this kind of meta identity that that absorbs but doesn't supplant these more local identities or micro identities or whatever you want to call it. And I just don't know that that alleviates some of the contradictions and some of the tensions, right? You're still going to have groups whose identity is rooted in this opposition to other groups. Mm -hmm. They're defined by what they're not. And that is going to create oppositions and collisions that I think are the stuff of political conflict. And I don't know how we escape that without escaping really who we are, what we are. Mm -hmm.
3: So the reason why I think it is possible as a proof of concept, Hmm. I've seen it with my own eyes. So I talked about my father who was a fundamentalist minister for over 20 years. He ended up resigning from the church after being confronted from a geology graduate student at McGill University, who was a prospective member of the church, was looking for his own tribe, and hit up my dad with some hard hitting facts about the age of the earth. My dad, he gave the stock answers that the church had told him to give, but he's like, I'm gonna take a month here and I'm gonna research this whole evolution thing and I'm gonna gonna go ahead and disprove it. And that led him on a five year, six, seven year journey to challenging his ontology to his very core. And I think maybe perhaps I have to give my interest in evolutionary theory credit to this because I was his guinea pig. He would call me up while he was reading Darwin and Sagan and Stephen Jay Gould, and he would give thought experiments to me about finches on an island. And I would just, my eight-year-old brain would be like, well, I guess that makes sense, Dad. But what he ended up doing was resigning from the church after a period of reflection because he couldn't teach evolutionary theory from the pulpit. And that led him to thinking and talking in his own social networks. And the write-up that my father did, the book he wrote about his experience that was given around the church, it was one of the reasons why in 2008, 50,000 people stopped identifying as fundamentalists and started accepting evolutionary theory. So that is remarkable to me. And here's the thing, Sean, the magic here is identity. My dad just stopped identifying as somebody who was a, a fundamentalist Christian. This stuff is malleable and if we're conscious of that, we need to leverage that. And identity is an illusion. Anybody who's done a, a significant amount of meditation can actually maybe resonate with this idea. So, I'm optimistic about our species.
1: I do agree actually that we are incredibly malleable that we are incredibly plastic and maybe part of the problem to my mind is that we just don't have we don't have the right incentive structure mm. right there's a disconnect between our actual needs and the incentives driving our institutions and our own individual behavior and that seems to be like maybe one of our our big civilizational problems and I just I don't know. I, I think like you, I I've I stepped back from the last five, six, seven years of sort of just observing what's happening in the world and and I see this global cycle wave of reactionary politics. Mm-hmm. And it gives me real pause um about our prospects. And again, I I share your your aspirations. I just what I'm seeing is not confidence inspiring. I'll put it that way.
3: Hmm. You know. The arc of human evolution has been a long one, and we'll need to have, like you said, society align incentives in ways that, that fosters pro sociality versus anti sociality. Definitely. Um, I'm hopeful that those tools will begin emerging and we'll be able to, to start the work. You know, David, I, I guess I go back
1: to that Dunbar number. You know, I'm like, maybe <laughs> the truth is that we're actually only able to live in meaningful communities at a certain scale. And I don't know if it's 150 but it's probably not as big as we would like it's certainly not the entire world and beyond that whatever that threshold is it just sort of becomes unsustainable which is to say not impossible but the sorts of things it requires you know like tribalism writ large yeah the downsides of that the pathologies of that are so dangerous that ultimately it ends up kind of upending the whole thing from within I don't know I guess that's that's just sort of where I land
3: Yeah, um, I guess leveraging again this idea of identity being illusion, what we know is the reality is that of our shared experience of human biology. And so when we get drowned out in this sea of emphasizing difference, I think one good way to help us frame how we can create these systems that are more incentivized for human prosociality is thinking about our shared biological experience as a matter of experience, right? Like if you look at the life of a human being, no matter where you're born, what tribe you're born into, what culture you have, what language you speak, we're preoccupied from birth to death with almost identical things. We all want to fall in love. We all want to give love to an extended kin and social network. We want to have strong ties and relationships. We want to avoid the same things like getting sick. We're afraid of the same things like dying. And the reason why that is is because we share this beautiful lineage that goes back 250,000 years to a mitochondrial grandmother in East Africa. And it's this shared identity, this shared lineage that I think we need to emphasize and embed into at least a little bit into our identities. And if we do that, I think we're a little bit closer to what we're trying to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) what we need is so tantalizingly simple and yet so excruciatingly out of reach or, or difficult that <laughs> it's it's kind of maddening but it yeah, it can give you hope and also um, you know uh, be dispiriting at, at the same time I suppose <sighs> this is a good place to end actually once again the book is called Our Tribal Future David I, I guess we don't agree about everything but we agree about plenty and this was a lot of fun and I really appreciate you coming on the show i recommend your book to our listeners it's a pretty monumental piece of scholarship and there is a lot of insight and research packed into it so congrats on that as well
3: well thank you so much sean it's been an absolute pleasure being on this podcast
1: Eric Janikas is our producer, Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at box.com. If you appreciated this episode, share the link with your friends on all the socials. New episodes of The Gray Area drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.